Welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and Eric Ulin. We want to thank our sponsor, Survivor for Solutions, uh, run by John CZ Swartaki, a good friend of ours and our producer as well. CZ has been on the Hill testifying this week on uh, the effects of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is anybody interested in getting the patient's perspective. CZ is focusing on carrying that message forward, and we want to thank him, as well as our distributor, uh, Evergreen and Bigwig Media. This is Joe Grogan, and Eric Ulan's with us today. We have Justin Shubo, who is president of the National Civic Arts Society, a nonprofit organization headquartered in Washington, D.C., that promotes the classical and humanistic tradition in public art and architecture. In January 2021, Justin was elected chairman of the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, an independent federal agency comprising seven presidential appointees who are the aesthetic guardians of Washington, D.C. Justin was appointed to the commission by President Trump, but he also sits on the board of advisors of the Roger Scruton Legacy Foundation and the board of academic advisors of the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. He received his BA from Columbia, a JD from Yale, and spent four years studying philosophy at the University of Michigan. He has a website, Justin, or excuse me, shubo.com, S-H-U-B-O-W.com. So Justin, I want to thank you for coming here. I'm excited about this conversation because I always learn a lot whenever uh, I have the opportunity to talk to you, and you've already taught me a lot. And I think you and Eric will geek out on a few of these architectural and DC discussions too. So this is going to be fun. Uh, maybe you'd start by just talking a little bit about what the National Civic Art Society is and what you're focused on. Sure. So first off, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, the National Civic Art Society was founded in 2002. Um, as you said, we promote the classical and humanistic tradition in public art and architecture. Uh, we look to the fact that the founding fathers consciously selected the classical tradition for the design of the core buildings of the government, the Washington, the White House and the Capitol building, and for the plan of the city itself. They wished to hearken back to Republican Rome and Democratic Athens and really set um, a tradition that has come to embody the architecture of American democracy ever since. And um, our organization exists to uphold and further that tradition. So Justin, why was it important to the founding fathers to hearken back to Athens and Rome? Um, when you think we were starting something new in the new world and with you know throwing off the british king why did they want to concentrate on hearkening back to rome and athens um well first i would note that great statesmen throughout history have understood the power of architecture um, on the body politic i mean going as far back as pericles in ancient greece um, who gave a famous speech talking about the building of the, uh, um, of the Parthenon at the Acropolis. I mean, as people, some people know about the founding generation, 
they looked extensively back to the classical world um, when, you know, crafting the uh, the new national government, the, the the legal framework, the Declaration, the Constitution, and at, since they were looking back to these ancient figures and using um, pseudonyms taken from that period, you know, in the Federalist Papers, it was no accident that the founders would also look back to classical precedents and architecture. So let me uh, ask one more, and then I'll turn it over to Eric. So. The founding fathers say um, they they settle on an architectural style of classical architecture for Washington D.C. How long does that last? We have the Capitol, um, the Supreme Court, the White House to a certain extent, um, the Beaux Arts Building next door in the old Executive Office Building. Um, how long do we, as a country, concentrate on? replicating that style in our federal buildings before we start to walk away from it? Well, classicism really continued as the architecture of American democracy for about 150 years. Um, in fact, in 1901, the Treasury Department, which at the time oversaw federal buildings, explicitly made classicism the official government style. And um, as you were saying, there are more contemporary buildings um, that are classical contemporary, meaning you know things like the Supreme Court, which was built in the 1930s, um, a modern a, you know a building built in the quote unquote modern era, still continuing that classical tradition. Um, but everything really came to a halt um, with the uh, the birth of GSA in 1949. And GSA is a government. Services Administration, right, and that's the provider for federal buildings. Exactly, GSA oversees um, the design, the construction, and maintenance of all federal buildings. It's the largest patron of architecture in the country, um, and actually also of art, since one half of one percent of all construction funds must go toward art installed at these federal buildings. And you add it all up, we're talking huge amounts of money. So you have this tradition, but as you say, when the Government Service Administration is founded or created in 1949, a conglomeration of responsibilities and other offices, a departure begins, which seems to be ratified publicly in 1962 with a document. And from there, all sorts of challenges on architecture and public buildings erupt. Talk a little bit about that transition. What drove it? How do we get to that point and some of the initial consequences of this severe break from a 150-year tradition of public buildings in the more classical style? Sure. So during World War II, many federal buildings were just built as cheaply as possible with essentially no architecture. Um, you might think, for instance, of the State Department. You know, when I say think of, I think a lot of most Americans have no idea what the State Department looks like. They can't even envision it because it's an utterly forgettable building. But at that time, as I was saying, architecture as such almost started disappearing. In 1962, a young Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, then a staffer at the Labor Department, though, as, as many people know, would later become senator from New York, he inserted a single page in a government report on federal office space. 
and he grandly titled it Guiding Principles for Federal Architecture. Th those, um, those principles were never approved by the president or, you know, or were made official in any way, but GSA um, really took them to heart and has treated them as holy writ ever since. Those principles are what established the hegemony of modernism in federal design. They did a, a couple of key things. One, one of the principles said that there can be no official government style, which was their way of saying no official classicism. They said that federal buildings must reflect the finest contemporary, quote unquote, contemporary American thought in architecture, which is a code word for modernism. And perhaps most importantly, the principles stated that design shall flow from the architectural profession to the government and not the other way around. And that's the sentence that's so significant in terms of what happens next. Did Moynihan know that these sorts of consequences would flow from this sentence and the philosophy behind these principles? Or did he somewhat witlessly use his reputation as a public intellect to sign off on something in pursuit of a different quest and move on, not realizing the, the implications and, and the tragedies that would result? Well, ironically, um, Moynihan, who was an advocate for modernism at the time, would go on to become a devotee of classical architecture. Um, he was responsible for saving the Beaux-Arts Custom House in New York from being demolished. He was very proud of the, uh, the Reagan building, which completed the Federal Triangle, which is roughly classical, at least on the exterior. But he would admit, um, he admitted in you know, interviews uh, later in life that it was his intent to make modernism default when drafting those 1962 guiding principles. This is what I, intrigues me. The, the language is um, American. Was it American modernism is the exact phrase? Or American contemporary design? Right, the word, the word was contemporary. They decided to walk away from the classical design that you said had dominated <clears throat> you know, up until 1949. What was it? How would you define American contemporary design? Was it actually borrowed from Europe or did it have certain elements that were purely American? Sure. Um, so by that time in American history, architectural modernism had become dominant. Modernism began in Europe um, between the first and second world wars. It was a time where many architects and artists in Europe thought that Europe had self-destructed and they were seeking to create a new world for a new kind of man, and they were inventing a new kind of architecture to do that. It was a kind of architecture that completely rejected past precedents, um, eliminated all ornament, um, became highly minimalistic. Um, there were a number of slogans that encapsulated modernism, one of them being form follows function, um, another one being a house is a machine for living in. Um, the, the machine metaphor was highly prevalent and it ultimately created, you know, glass and steel boxes that, um, you know, people might envision. Um, another element um, of outcome of modernism was uh, brutalism, which is a style of architecture um, made up of large expanses of raw concrete, um, highly repetitive, on, often with 
punched windows. That would be the Humphrey Building or the Energy Building in Washington, D.C., right? Right. The The Southwest Quadrant in Washington is full of brutalist buildings constructed in the 1960s and 70s. So the Humphrey Building, for those people who don't know, is the headquarters for Health and Human Services, which now sprawls across a number of different buildings. Uh, I spent a number of years working in it, and it is awful to be in and awful to look at it has certain features including uh supposedly riot proof windows you know the 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 ledges of the windows are slanted down so you can't get grappling hooks in them for the proletariat to storm the place and the bottom is apparently designed so that if if there is a riot in dc um when people are desperate to destroy the headquarters of the health and human services building or i guess anything they would break in and the theory being the energy of the crowd would dissipate and they would lock down the elevators and the stairways and all the federal employees could remain above. But um, again, the rioters are down in the bottom. They've expended all their energy to break in. They have nowhere to go. They they chill out. But it, it, it leaks. Um, its ventilation is terrible. And it's got terrible light. And it's ugly. Um, so I, that's my vote. But I'm personal. That's my vote is the ugliest building in D.C. But I walk by the energy complex and I'm baffled at how anybody could that much concrete in any one place. Well, it's funny you should mention the Humphrey building. Um, this summer, there was a great deal of controversy on Reddit and then it really blew up on Twitter um, where people were um, trying to choose, you know, what's the ugliest building in Washington? And the Humphrey Building, um, which is designed by the famous architect Marcel Breuer, um, was coming out as number one. The it was blowing up so much that HHS um, actually weighed in on Twitter, saying, "Hey guys, be nice." Um, they were actually being kind of cheeky. It was it was it was fun to see, and they were defending the fact that well, they're good people working within the building. Um, but I think brutalism um, is probably the most hated style of architecture in the United States. And it's never been popular with the public. It's not as if, oh, if we only just wait long enough, the people are going to come around and, uh, and appreciate it. Um, and, and I think this is no accident since a lot of the people who created brutalism, I think, were rejecting beauty as a criterion and instead we're focused on what they said was honesty, um, which I think might mean honesty about, you know, the brutality of, of the world. Um, they were also, I think, trying to achieve um, the sublime in Edmund Burke's sense of the term. Um, Burke was not just a political philosopher, but actually wrote a terrific book on aesthetics. And he talked about the sublime as being a sense of overweening power, um, you know, a sense of awe in um, sort of a negative sense, you know, like the way you could be a ship in a giant storm is uh, you feel very threatened. And brutalist buildings can give you a feeling of the sublime in that they do make you feel fear and terror. And there was even a defender of brutalism, uh, the filmmaker Jonathan Meads, who said not long ago, um, there's something ter uh, terrifying and sinister about brutalism, bu brutalist buildings, which is why I like them. So in other words, the fear that these buildings instill is a plus, not a minus. So Justin, we have 
a classical tradition which reflects a, a deep appreciation of history, humanity, in some respects, our soul and, and how we view the world. It is replaced in the public sphere with modernist and, and brutalist buildings, a lot in the private sector as well, especially after the post-war. We have this significant explosion of that in, in the capital and courtesy again of the GSA around the country. Where is the counter revolution? Where is the movement, the pushback that ultimately comes as government building after government building is erected in DC and around the country and people are saying, no, thank you. That doesn't work for me. That is an eyesore or worse. We should not be signing off on these things, improving them. They should not be cited in our cities, in our towns, in the capital itself. Well, there was major pushback um, in the Trump administration. President Trump issued an executive order that revolutionized uh, federal architecture, reorienting it from ugly modernism to beautiful classical and traditional design. The order did a couple of key things. Um, it required that federal buildings should uplift and beautify public spaces, inspire the human spirit, ennoble the United States, and command respect from the general public. Um, so here the order was noting that these buildings might be popular with architects and certain cultural elites, but they're not liked by uh, the ordinary person. Also key in the order is that it required that GSA should seek input um, from the users of applicable buildings and the general public in the community where the buildings um, are going to be located. And this instituted an element democracy that has completely been missing since GSA was established. Under the process at the time before the, the EO was issued, there was no requirement that the public um, have any say in building design. And in fact, there were even instances where not only was the public ignored, but even federal judges' preferences were ignored. So in one case in Orlando, the judges requested that they be given a traditional courthouse. And there was a big fight between them and GSA. And GSA actually won and imposed a modernist design um, over their wishes. So unpack the consequences of the executive order. We have this pushback in the private sector, in the public sector, a leadership role by a president who knows a little something about buildings, um, uh, putting his thumb down to say very clearly, look, we should not be continuing to head in this modernist direction. Again, what sort of impact did that have and how effective was it in undoing the last 60 or 70 years of drift and, and desolation inside public architecture? Um, well, I forgot to mention that um, in 1994, the GSA created a new design program to fix what it itself admitted were the flaws of its mid-century buildings. Um, that new program um, is called the Design Excellence Program. And with that program, GSA started building some really avant-garde and crazy designs. Um, one of the cases in point being the San Francisco Federal Building, 
that looks like it's some kind of sinister tower that's going to shoot laser beams at you, um, designed by an architect named Tom Main, who has admitted that his buildings take an aggressive approach toward the public. Um, so he's not been hiding his design philosophy, um, but the New York Times called Maine the federal government's favorite architect. Um, another atrocious building is the Salt Lake City Federal Building, um, which at best looks like an air conditioning unit, at worst, um, a Borg cube, if you know the, the villainous spacecraft from Star Trek. Um, Star Trek. And in fact, the building appeared on the cover of the Salt Lake City Weekly with the headline, how, you, how um, Salt Lake City ended up with a board cube for federal architecture. Um, so GSA went from very often, you know, boring um, and banal, you know, box-like buildings to building some really far out stuff. And in that design program, since 1990, 1994, only about 8% of the buildings that were constructed um, were in a classical or traditional design. A key counterexample is the Tuscaloosa Federal Building and Courthouse, um, which is classical. It's a courthouse that looks like a courthouse. Um, it's Greek Revival uh, um, in, in style. The sole reason that that building exists in that design is because then-Senator Shelby of Alabama forced GSA to give him um, such a design. He, at the time, was the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee and could, and could push GSA around. Uh, but that was a very rare exception, but it's a beautiful building that's been popular with ordinary people, with the users, and it shows that the classical tradition is alive and well and is just waiting to be, to be used. Um, so getting back to the executive order, um, you know, the order wished to build, um, I mean, I think it singled out the Tuscaloosa Federal Building as an example of the sort of thing that it wished to build more of. Um, it also talked about historic styles as being appropriate, not just classicism, but, you know, everything from Romanesque to Gothic to Pueblo Revival. Um, it was by no means, you know, mandating that there be pediments and columns across the country. Um, however, it was at its strictest regarding Washington, D.C., where the order required that all new federal buildings in Washington be classical. The idea being that Washington was created as a classical city by the founders, and it is a classical city in the minds of the American people. When people think of Washington, they think of the Capitol building, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, Sure, like they may have seen the FBI headquarters, which is brutalist, but that's not really what Americans think of when they think of Washington. And the timing of this is important for no other reason that many of these buildings thrown up in the 1960s and early 70s are now reaching the end of their lifespan. There's going to need to be a turnover and a reconstruction of many of these buildings, especially in the Southeast Quadrant or along Independence Avenue here over the next few decades and getting them right in a reconstruction phase is so critically important. Yeah, I mean, the FBI building, which was completed in the 1970s, needs to be torn down. It's already falling apart. A lot of these modernist buildings were not built to last for the centuries. Um, I mean, by contrast, the Capitol, build, the Capitol building is 200 years old and is just fine. 
um, classical buildings built of you know stone um, can really last forever. So yeah, the question is, um, if a new FBI building is constructed in Washington, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be something as bad as what is currently there, um, which J. Edgar Hoover said was like something from Mars? Um, or is it going to be a beautiful building um, that portrays the American government um, in, in, the, in the best light? So you have this executive order, but then a new president comes to town. Tell us a little bit about what happened to the executive order and whether or not in the period of time that it was in existence, it, it had an impact on GSA and design of, of buildings in, in federal spaces. Well, the order itself was highly popular with ordinary people. Um, I don't think it was controversial to the, to the layperson, but the architectural establishment had a conniption fit over it since this was a real threat to their power. And it's also important to understand that a lot of money is at stake. There are a lot of mega firms out there that are used to getting um, these huge projects and they might not be getting them under the executive order. So the American Institute of Architects, which is the main trade organization representing um, architects, um, was vehemently opposed to the order. And um, cultural outlets like the New York Times were also opposed. The New York Times published an editorial titled, What's So Great About Fake Roman Temples? Um, I think the implication of that is that when the Jefferson Memorial was constructed, or when the Supreme Court was constructed, that those were fake Roman temples as well, since obviously they're not 2,000-year-old buildings. But you had cultural elites um, howling against the order, saying that this is Nazi architecture and so on. And unfortunately, uh, soon after he came into office, President Biden rescinded the order. Now, the White House didn't give any explanation as to why Biden took that action. However, um, something related happened that does shed light on the situation. So as you, um, as, as Joe said, I was chairman of the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, and the commission itself um, was stocked with seven members appointed by President Trump, all who were staunch supporters of classical and traditional design. Um, what President Trump did in his appointments was really an, an amazing um, piece of history since largely since World War II, the Fine Arts Commission had been almost entirely modernist in orientation. And President Trump appointed us. We were appointed to four-year terms. Um, people were appointed as prior commissioners' terms ended. Um, the commission's not meant to be um, composed of political appointees that change with the administration. A few months after rescinding the executive order, Biden removed me and three other commissioners from the commission um, in violation of the law, I believe, and certainly in violation of 110 years of history in which no president had ever removed a commissioner. And Break down for the listener, if you could, Justin, the role of the commission quickly, especially when it comes to Washington, D.C., how important this really is in terms of, of, of how D.C. looks 
and the way that buildings and other fine art projects are approved. Sure. So the commission oversees the design of all monuments and memorials and public buildings in Washington. Um, anything good or bad that you see constructed on the mall um, has been approved by the Fine Arts Commission. And um, it has an, a lot of authority, has a lot of authority um, when it comes to making sure monuments and memorials are worthy of the best of our tradition. Um, and likewise that you know, public buildings are beautiful and serve the, the public good. Um, but as I said, you know, by and large, the commission um, has been modernist for many decades and, you know, it approved all of the brutalism in Washington, D.C. Um, it, it was happy uh, that those buildings uh, were constructed. Um, the commission has also approved a lot of the um, I mean, all of the regrettable monuments and memorials. I mean, I would in include um, in that list the Martin Luther King Memorial, uh, which is socialist realist in its design. So to be clear, your your apprehension about the, the Martin Luther King Monument is not in the significance and the focus on him and the movement to bring about civil rights in the United States, full flower civil rights, but instead the design of the monument itself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously Martin Luther King um, is deserving of a, of a national memorial on the mall. Um, what I'm talking about is the design of, of the memorial itself. Um, there's also the atrocious National Eisenhower Memorial that was recently completed. That is a gargantuan, gargantuan deconstructivist design um, that really does very little to, you know, do, do, do justice to Eisenhower's uh, reputation. Um, all that being said, um, when President Biden removed us, the White House did tell the press that we were removed since our strong support for classical architecture did not comport with the president's values. So in that case, they did refer to classicism as being the grounds. Now, you know, I wonder if we could look inside Biden's head, he probably has perfectly sound views on architecture. I mean, he has, you know, a series of beautiful houses. Um, I don't suspect that, you know, he wants avant-garde designs for federal buildings. But as I said, the, the art and architecture establishment had been heavily lobbying him. And, you know, people at the White House were reading the New York Times and, you know, teaching mar marching orders from outlets like that. Uh, so. Justin, I want to ask, um, I got a lot of questions, but I was intrigued by your, your talk about some of the memorials. Um, Teddy Roosevelt on Roosevelt Island, he, he kind of looks like Stalin in that representation. Do you have any uh, opinion on that and any history on how that thing got created? Um, you know, I don't know much about that memorial. Um, I can see, you know, where you're, where you're, where you're heading with that. Um, but no, I can't, I can't really comment on, on that memorial. How about the, what, do you have an opinion about the FDR memorial? Sure. So the FDR memorial, I think is a classic example of the sprawl, um, that has been plaguing memorials for decades now. It's this enormous outdoor museum 
Um, you walk through a series of quote unquote outdoor rooms and there's a lot, um, I mean, there's a lot of, of strange symbolism that is inscrutable. So there's a room where there's all these sort of sunken impressions on the wall um, and with what looks like braille and you really have no very little understanding of what you're looking at. Um, the, the portrait, the, the main statue of President Roosevelt, I think is a very unflattering portrait of the president. Um, he literally has like a wart on his face. His mouth is open, which, and no, no one looks good with their, with their mouth open. Um, also, you know, there is, um, kitsch in the memorial. So besides president Roosevelt is a statue of his little dog Fala. And as one could predict, what people do is take cute little photos with the dog and it undermines any seriousness in the memorial people do not take cute photos at the lincoln memorial there's solemnity there's a somberness um but i think that's lacking at the fdr memorial yeah all this sprawl i mean that's the korea world war ii is huge in the middle of the mall um all around again this is not to say that these are not worthy subjects but we got away from thomas jefferson gets a relatively um, small footprint. Um, Washington has an obelisk, and yet we've got these long tableaus of concrete and trying to tell a story and symbolism that's frequently difficult to understand. I Do you understand, for instance, why the World War II memorial is the way it is with all the different states represented? Um, well, I can tell you that the reason that it's sunken into the ground is because it was placed in such a key location at the cross axis of the mall, um, that there was this requirement that it not have any tall, uh, any tall features. Um, to me, the memorial's kind of sad, it's gray, and you can't really tell who won the war when you see that memorial. You know, I like to joke that, you know, it might as well be a Wehrmacht memorial. Um, I mean, I know some, you know, veterans like it, but I think from a, um, from an artistic perspective that it is it is a failure. Are there any good ones that have come out lately? I'm glad you asked, since the forthcoming National World War One Memorial is going to have a magnificent classical sculpture at its heart. Um, while the, the plan of the memorial is modernist, um, the art is going to be this um, large relief by the sculptor Sabin Howard. I think it's something like 80 feet long by eight feet high, and it's going to depict um, the story of soldiers from, what, from um, starting from leaving the home front, going into the crucible of battle, and you see the uh, tragedy and destruction and then not only are, do they return home, but you see an ascendant America. It ends with a parade with flags flying. And I think one thing that's important about this memorial is that it's gonna be highly legible to the public. You don't need an audio guide or a tour guide to explain what you're looking at. There's no inscrutable symbolism. There's a lot of al allegory. And it's also not, just another victim memorial. Um, it shows that there was heroism in the war and it's a patriotic memorial. It's not afraid to have flags flying. Um, 
you know, at, at its conclusion. So building off that, given your dismissal, given the revocation of the executive order, is there some hope still out there when it comes to the, the classical tradition and architectural design on, on the federal level? I think there's a lot of hope. One thing um, that came out at the time of the executive order um, when it was pending, my organization did a survey by the Harris Poll of 2000 Americans' um, preferences in federal architecture. Uh, we carefully um, compared, um, showed people two photos of actually existing federal buildings without any identification, um, buildings chosen to be similar in color, shape, scale, and so on. And the survey participants were asked, you know, which of these would you prefer for a federal building or U.S. courthouse? And 72% of the people surveyed preferred the traditional option. There were widespread majorities across all demographic groups, race, gender, socioeconomic, and also political party affiliation, with 70% of Democrats favoring tradition and 73% of Republicans. So the survey proved something that I think everyone really knew, including modernist architects, is that ordinary people do prefer tradition for these building projects. And that's one reason for thinking that the executive order was popular with the general public. So although the executive order was rescinded, um, already there has been one positive ramification. Thanks to the order, um, a chairman of the relevant committee in Congress asked the Government Accountability Office, which you know, is widely respected as an independent agency, um, the, the, the chairman asked GAO to do an investigation of the General Services Administration to see how do they actually choose architects for building projects. And the GAO report, which dropped um, a few months ago, found that there is no required public input and the lack of public input could lead to the to the widespread claims that these buildings are unpopular with the public. GAO recommended that GSA change its policies and procedures to take into account public input when design decisions are being made, um, which I think was a fantastic recommendation. And best of all, GSA agreed to take um, to make those changes. This, I think, represents a huge victory for proponents of Trump's executive order. But the GAO um, is not the end of the story. Um, earlier this year, uh, Senator Marco Rubio um, introduced legislation um, that would effectively codify um, the executive order. And likewise, there was companion legislation in the House, um, or is companion legislation in the House, uh, sponsored by Representative Jim Banks of Indiana. Um, Banks, as you may know, was a rising star, and there's a very good chance that he's going to be elected senator um, in the next election. So this, I mean, this is the first time that there's been ever been any legislation on federal architecture. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know if there's an, ever been any any such legislation pending, and you know, my my hope is is that members of Congress can look at things like our Harris poll 
and see that this is a bipartisan issue and that the legislation, you know, that they should support the legislation to give Americans the sort of beautiful buildings that they that they wish to see. Justin, can we get into a little bit because you've got <clears throat> um, you got into the study of architecture and made this important. Be is it because of your study of philosophy that you realized, or was it just sort of tangential? Or why do you think you got interested in architecture the way you did? Well, I did um, while studying philosophy come across some of uh, the philosopher Roger Scruton's writing on architecture. Uh, people may know Scruton as being um, a great political philosopher, but his original interest was in aesthetics. That's what he wrote his dissertation on, and he wrote extensively on architecture. Um, one of the things that he emphasizes is that architecture um, is unlike a painting on a wall um, or a novel. You don't have to read the novel. You don't have to go see the painting, but architecture is public. It's forced upon us. And it's therefore the most political of the arts, small p, political. And of course, well, when it comes to government buildings, these buildings are explicitly political. Um, but reading Scruton and others, I came to see how buildings embody ideas. Architecture is a mirror um, in which a civilization sees itself. And I looked at my environment and I saw that buildings have become so much uglier in America after World War II, and it greatly upset me. I mean, I, I think it's important that we build a beautiful world. Uh, buildings can uplift us or make our day better, or they can oppress us and make us you know, feel um, unhappy. Um, so yes, my a lot of my interest in architecture did originally arise out of my readings in philosophy. Um, but I also came across Tom Wolfe's book from the 1980s, uh, From Bauhaus to Our House. The book is a, a short little scathing polemic against modern, modern architecture. And he talks about, you know, he wants to explain how is it that, you know, all these captains of industry and powerful people in America started um, hiring architects to build ugly buildings that are widely despised by ordinary people. He, he, um, he tells that story about um, starting with the Bauhaus, which was um, an art and architecture school founded in Germany in the 1920s, um, that school was highly uh, motivated by uh, political radi radicalism. They talked about building the Cathedral of Socialism. Um, among its key, um, key leaders were Mies van der Rohe, Walter Gropius, and Marcel Breuer. And the Bauhaus was trying to create this revolutionary new world. Um, ultimately, uh, the Nazis shut down the Bauhaus and its leaders um, ended up going to Harvard. Um, now, some people say, oh, you know, the, uh, the leaders were being oppressed by the Nazis. In fact, um, Gropius and Mies van der Rohe actively sought work from the Nazi regime, but they didn't get it. So it's not as if they were opposed to the Nazis. Uh, Mies van der Rohe even signed a public statement, um, Sieg Heil or Heil Hitler, um, and advocated uh, for the Nazi regime. But these these German architects um, went to Harvard, um, and from there um, led to the change in American architecture becoming um, modernist. 
Um, and to give you a sense of where Harvard stood, the, the dean of the Graduate School of Design, Joseph Hodnett, um, he was so opposed to classical architecture that he said that the national, the original building of the National Gallery of Art, which is a classical design, he called it a pink marble whorehouse. Um, and it was not the sort of building that he wanted to see. He also said that uh, the Jefferson Memorial was an egg on a pantry shelf in the midst of a geometric Sahara. <laughs> so this is the worldview of, of the modernists and these Germans, some of whom sought work for the Nazis, ultimately got commissions for from the federal government. So Mies van der Rohe, Walter Gropius, and Marcel Breuer all uh, ended up designing federal buildings. Uh, Breuer designed the HHS building that we've talked about. He also designed um, the head, HUD headquarters in Washington, another brutalist monstrosity. Um, when, when he was HUD secretary, Jack Kemp famously said that the building was like 10 floors of basement. Later, Sean Donovan as HUD secretary, a Democrat in contrast to Kemp, a Republican, quoted Kemp and said that that was true. And then later, when he's HUD secretary, Julian Castro, a Democrat, also said the building was like 10 floors of basement. And he said it looked like something from the Soviet Union. So here we have Republicans and Democrats coming together agreeing that this brutalist building is terrible, yet GSA holds up the HUD building as an example of excellence in federal design. It shows how the agency has completely gone off the rails. So Justin, given these challenges, executive order, your role, uh, President Biden's dismissal of you, and the infestation of, uh, of this idea of architecture in the academy, some aspects of popular culture, obviously uh, many architects. Where are there schools and leaders today, besides yourself at Shubo.com, talking about advocating for pushing and ultimately being successful in reintroducing classical architecture, that reflection of man's, man's relationship uh, more naturally into the public sphere? Well. There has been a resurgence of contemporary classical architecture, and it's been led by the University of Notre Dame's architecture school. It's a rare example of an architecture school that actually teaches classical architecture. And, um, you know, it's, it's been an amazing outpost. Um, more recently, Catholic University's School of Architecture has also been turning in a classical direction. So that's great to see a school here in Washington um, taking a traditional approach. Um, unfortunately, these two schools really are exceptions. Um, most architecture schools in America don't teach classical architecture whatsoever. They're basically brainwashing cults um, that take um, students and turn them into modernists. Um, there's even been uh, interesting studies showing that the longer students are in architecture school, the more their preferences diverge from those of lay people. Um, there's um, also a scientific study that found that not only do architects perceive and judge buildings differently from lay people, they can't even predict how lay people will experience a building. That's how far gone their 
brains are thanks to their architectural indoctrination. Before we get back to like the, the user's experience, the public's experience with a building, do you have an observation? I can see why the Germans went a little nuts after World War I. Their country was in shambles, their economy was in shambles, they'd lost millions of men, they, you know, they lost the war. I can see why you have a existential philosophical meltdown around this and they throw out their architectural um, traditions and all their traditions, right? Um, but why do you think after World War II, the United States did the same? We, were, we had won the war, we were dominating the world, we had the world's strongest economy. Why do you think there was this shift away from the architecture that um, that you know we had built to get to that point. Well, part of it was, as I said, that um, you know Harvard's School of Architecture, which really led the profession in the United States, imported some of these German architects who brought modernism with them. Um, but I do think that you know various uh, you know people in America saw that modern architecture represented the new world order, um, that it, you know, the international style, you know, which became the, the style of, of, you know, international business, uh, it became the style of our, of our embassies, that this represented the new world, the, the, the new spirit of the times, that there was no going back to um, an earlier era. I mean, yeah, it's ironic that we, we won World War II and and yet we still ended up rejecting our, our heritage in in the new architecture. I want to ask you, what is it that about a classical building versus a modernist building that when the layperson walks in, maybe they can't even put the finger their fingers on it, but they feel better. They like being in the building. They like looking at it from the outside. Do you have a few common elements or or reasons why? One is preferred. Can you define that a little bit before we, um, in, our, in our remaining few minutes? Well, one thing you'll find in a lot of beloved um, traditional architecture is ornament, uh, detail. Um, there are various levels of complexity um, at various scales. So for instance, you could look at a classical building from a distance and you can see certain shapes and features um, but as you get closer to the building, there's more and more detail, and then you can get all the way down to the interior and say, looking at a molding in the ceiling, and you can see a relation between the parts and the holes uh, extending throughout the building. Um, you know, there are certain theoreticians that try to talk about um, sort of like the fractal nature of various kinds of traditional architecture. Um, but often classical, I mean, classical buildings are typically um, symmetrical, which is something that human beings um, tend to be hardwired to appreciate. Um, there, there are features like that that I think do tap into um, our essential nature, which is why we do prefer some buildings over others. Obviously, I'd I would love to see the Humphrey Building destroyed, HUD, um, you know, energy, FBI replaced. Is that like your hit list, or do you have a larger vision? for Washington, D.C., and how we should be viewing our nation's capital? Or is it merely a matter of identifying ugly buildings to destroy? 
Well, it's not just about taking down ugly buildings and replacing them um, with beautiful buildings, but to focus on building uh, worthy new government buildings in Washington. Um, you know, is there gonna, if there is gonna be a new FBI building, what is that going to look like? Um, now it's true that there aren't that many uh, buildings that are built in Washington nowadays. There might be a new building, something like every five to 10 years. Um, but when those buildings are constructed, do they represent the architecture of democracy or do they represent um, the architectural avant-garde or, or something that's fashionable and, and disposable? Well, I certainly have a lot of buildings that I would like to see replaced. And I'd love to see some beautiful buildings go up in their place, not just in DC, but also um, around the country whenever we spend federal dollars. I think one thing that's interesting is what, with all this remote work now that the federal employees are engaged in, um, do we need all these buildings moving forward? A lot of people are working from home. There's flex schedules. All these buildings are dedicated to specific departments. And a lot of them, um, you know, I've seen GSA censuses uh, that on some days there's only 10% of the employees in one of these buildings. Um, so, you know, we've got a lot of big buildings that are not being used right now. Um, and it might not be uh, a bad idea to combine a couple departments into one if it's just going to end up being headquarters and security staff and a few others as essential functions. And a lot of people are going to be working remotely. Of course, that'll remain to be seen. Perhaps one of the reasons people like to work from home amongst many others is that they just don't like going into these buildings, which aren't scaled for human beings, which don't have these familiar ways of interacting with a public space that are not welcoming for visitors that seem antagonistic, sterile and cold. And as Justin outlined, are very antagonistic to the individual and groups of individuals, Joe, as, as you outlined, um, in how they're constructed and, and the philosophy behind them. So for what it's worth, Justin, I can't tell you how grateful we are for your time today and this discussion on what really is a, a very significant issue and something as you outlined that the public has a strong, uh, strong opinion on. So for DCEKG, I thank you for your time today as our guest. I also thank Big Wig Media and our distributor Evergreen, Riverside Studios, which hosted us today. Our sponsor, www.survivorsforsolutions.org. Our producer, John C.Z. Swartaki, and our assistant producer, Eli Levy. DCEAKG can be found wherever better podcasts are discovered. Please click, listen, and subscribe. For DCEKG host Joe Grogan and myself, co-host Eric Gillen, thanks for listening. We'll be talking. <music>